0: University. University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out.
1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Food, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm the host of the channel, Amir Sayadabdi. Today, I have the pleasure of uh, talking to Dr. David Border-Giles about his new book, A Mass Conspiracy to Feed People, which was published just recently in 2021 by Duke University Press. David is a lecturer in anthropology in the School of Humanities and Social Sciences at Deakin University. He's also one of the co producers of uh, Conversations in Anthropology, which happens to be one of my favorite podcasts. Uh, David, thanks for accepting my invitation and welcome to the show.
0: Hi, thanks for inviting me and thanks for listening to the podcast. Uh, I'm always excited to hear where, uh, where it reaches.
1: Uh, to start off I want to ask you the same question that you usually ask your guests on your own podcast and that is uh, could you please tell us a bit about your background and how you ended up as an anthropologist
0: Mm. well I was five and (laughs) no but actually I was 10 Uh, I think the story does go back to being 10 or so and uh, moving to the United States Um, my mum told me we were going to Disneyland and that was true but then we stayed. And so I was one of those, you know, I think like so many of us, I was one of those kind of third culture kids or whatever. I was uh, neither at home in my context, nor did I have a, uh, a place to go back to in the same way. So I grew up bouncing back and forth between the Australian context and the American context. And I think I uh, just had to do uh, a kind of proto-ethnography in order to make sense of the, you know, the two contexts that I was bouncing between and just kind of orient myself, ground myself in it. So I became a a kind of inveterate people watcher. So I think I've been an anthropologist since I was 10. Uh, And then also the United States is such a, you know, for someone who hasn't grown up being socialised into it, the United States is such a a confronting place of, of contradictions. I mean, everywhere is but, you know, nowhere more so than the United States. So I think I really started paying attention to the issues I've ended up researching, uh, you know, as a teen and in my, uh, you know, late teens and early 20s living in California where there is such inequality. And so I've got really vivid memories of you know, walking to class and walking back And people asking me if I would give them money for lunch or if I'd give them money for a sandwich. Uh, And, you know, at the time, uh, I was taught, like so many people are taught, that you shouldn't just give people money. They'll do harm to themselves with it, Uh, which I now, uh, you know, I now realise that's um, at best an oversimplification and at worst an uh, an excuse for not helping people. But, you know, instead of giving people money at the time, uh, I would just stop and buy the lunch, you know, and say, look, I don't have any cash, but I've got a debit card. And I ended up spending a lot of time uh, with people. So, you know, they'd take me up on it and we'd go, to, you know, 7-Eleven or Subway or some sort of fast food place that was nearby. I'd take 15 minutes out of my uh, my day, which is not much in the grand scheme of things. Um, I own a sandwich and hang out with this person for 15 minutes, um, And, you know, that in its own way was a kind of proto-ethnography of food insecurity, a proto-ethnography of homelessness, uh, you know, and it was this window into American uh, class structure and a window into the American, the whole American economy. You know, homelessness uh, is a kind of expressive totality for uh, American capitalism in a way. So... I learned a lot about the United States from buying people food. uh, And I, and I hadn't learned not to do that, you know, in the way that uh, I think most people in the United States from an early age are just kind of taught not to see it, right? They're taught to walk right on by. And there's this really carefully developed cultural blind spot, which I didn't have. So all all of those issues uh, made me really attuned to the kinds of things that Uh, you know food insecurity uh, food waste it all really kind of tuned me into the thing that ended up becoming you know 20 years later the book Um, and a a second a second aspect of that was while I was doing that uh, you know as a teen and in my early 20s I was also watching my friends and my peers uh, who were not homeless and who were not food insecure throwing food away constantly you know in the In the United States, and this has started to happen in Australia too. But again, nowhere is this more obvious than the US. There's such a glut of food excess, right? People, you order food at a restaurant, and you get two or three times as much as anyone could uh, comfortably eat. And so I would watch my friends, you know, not not wealthy people, you know, not uh, you know, not um, not conspicuously opulent, just you know, average uh, you know, people of average income and class standing, you know, right in the middle of the uh right in the middle of the, the distribution, throwing food away, left, right, and center. Um and <laughs> my, my my uh friends from the time will tell you when I was in my uh late teens and early twenties, I used to sometimes go to restaurants with them and uh not order anything. And they say, David, aren't you hungry? Uh, you know, you're right. I'd be like, nah, fine I'm just you know maybe I'll get something later I'm all right and I would wait and sure enough they wouldn't finish everything on their plate and then I'd I'd keep waiting uh, because of course you can take it home if you want but a lot of the time they wouldn't take it home and in fact I think for some people there's a kind of embarrassment about taking it home you know this is kind of class embarrassment uh, because you know if you um, if you take it home it makes you look a little bit too stingy or something like that so I'd wait until it was clear that they weren't going to take it home and then I'd polish it off <laughs> so you know in essence it was already waste it was on the plate you know it's going to get thrown away so why wouldn't I and it, and they were often quite annoyed <laughs> by me I had to stop doing it you know but, you know they, they were often annoyed and like oh there you go mooching and I was like you're going to throw this away there are some deep questions about why it's okay for you to throw it away, but it's not okay for me to quote-unquote mooch. You know, I had these three questions from an early age, like, why are people going hungry? What does that mean about the whole structure of the American economy? Um, and why are people throwing the food away? And that's what the book is about.
1: Yes. <laughs> so you practice in uh, freeganism from a very young age. Uh, we'll talk about that later. Uh, but uh, could we start with um, talking about your methods a little bit first. I mean, where was your field site? Who were your participants? And uh, generally, what was your field work work like?
0: Mm. Um, It's a great question. It sort of puts me back into the space of uh, my early anthropological training. You know, because I did my undergrad in the late 90s early 2000s and at that point uh the kind of dominant paradigm was still to venture off somewhere where you didn't speak the language uh and come back with stories from the field um and i was really taken by that you know uh there was a a part of me in my in my youth that was still really excited about about visiting the other but by the time i got to graduate school i'd sort of Done a bit of post colonial re evaluation. Uh, I'd kind of realized that there's a little bit of that kind of colonial uh, gaze to that and I felt uncomfortable about it. But I hadn't really figured out what my uh, research project was going to be. And in the meantime, uh, just for my own, uh, out of my own interests and commitments and politics, I'd gotten involved in this group, Food Not Bombs. Um, for anyone who hasn't heard food not bombs is i always say that it's a, a global movement of anarchist soup kitchens um, it, that kind of that catches a lot it's a it's a simplification but i'd gotten involved in the seattle chapter of food not bombs so we uh what food not bombs does is they get food that would have been thrown away they either dumpster die for it or they get it donated uh they cook it they hand it out to people who would have gone hungry it's that simple really Um, But there's all sorts of politics that grows up around that, which I can talk about later. But I was involved in Food Not Bombs and I was in graduate school trying to figure out what a responsible anthropologist would do rather than, you know, venture off in that kind of pith helmet colonial way. But it it took my supervisor at the time to say, why don't you write about Food Not Bombs? And there was a bit of a hush and I leaned in and I was like, but... That's my life. My life can't be my research, can it? You know, imagine me at 25, having a bit of, a bit of an epiphany and I really have to thank my supervisor, uh, Danny Hoffman for this. And he said, well, bear with me. You care about this, right? I said, yeah. And you think people should know about it, right? Yeah. And you think it's intellectually interesting, you know, that it, it, uh, there are, you know, discoveries and and uh and interesting problems that it poses to you and I said yep and he said so you can write about it uh and that meant that my you know activism instantly also became a a field site and a research method you know and I started paying attention to people who had done political ethnography uh, and treated it as both a political act and uh, a kind of research method and as a research method, et- ethnography lends itself to this, you know, for, for non-anthropologists listening, the anthropologist's key research method is ethnographic participant observation, which sort of uses your whole self as an instrument, right? Like you, you insert yourself subjectively into the thing you want to study. You become part of it, but you keep your eyes open. Uh, you try and, you know, keep a foot in as participant and a foot out as an observer. So in a way, doing direct action, being part of a social movement, has to be a kind of ethnography. And I was sort of uh, starting to read the work of people like Jeff Juris, who sadly passed uh, recently, uh, who was a great inspiration to me. Uh, Nancy Shepherd hughes is an anthropologist who, you know, who have done this kind of... Activism as ethnography and ethnography as activism. So I kept on doing food.bonds, dot Bonds, you know, I, for six years. I basically helped to run this anarchist soup kitchen. Uh, insofar as you can run an anarchist soup kitchen, uh, it's kind of um, no one's in charge, but it, it's amazing actually how, uh, how a decentralized kind of collective project like that can keep going. You know, the, there's a real kind of practical anarchism to it. And so I did Food Not Bombs in Seattle for uh, about six years and I visited other Food Not Bombs chapters and helped out there. And that became uh, the raw material for the book.
1: Mm. But um, please correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding, David, is that your book is not a book about Food Not Bombs, but you, you choose the movement as sort of a lens to uh, investigate some other issues like hunger, like homelessness, like uh, urban design right? Um, so, could you uh, talk a little bit about that? And also, my follow-up question is sort of, what does this movement have to do with mass conspiracy, as the title of your book implies?
0: Mm-hmm. Um, well, I'll yeah, I'll, I'll answer those in order then. Uh, I mean, initially, I didn't just want to treat my collaborators as a, you know, as an object, right? I, you know, these were people I... I was working with to a, uh, a greater end. Um, and I didn't I, I didn't like the idea of treating them like the other and and the kind of uh, quote unquote tribe that I was going to do my ethnography about. You know there's not much difference between doing that and that kind of colonizing version of anthropology that goes off to the uh, you know the far-flung other, you know takes their stories and brings it back i didn't want to do that um and you know partly i just i would have felt embarrassed to suddenly turn a spotlight on my friends and collaborators uh, that was what it was about so instead you know what i what i realized was that the thing that drew me to anthropology uh and also the thing that drew me to food not bombs was an interest in these systems of inequality that, that somehow produce all this food waste uh, and produce food insecurity and homelessness at the same time. You know, so what I, you know, in both cases, what I was really learning about, what I was studying was the city, the urban economy, the American economy, uh, and, you know, what I came to call manufactured scarcity. And so the real question was how and why would our economy and our social systems produce such uh, inequality and scarcity while throwing things away. So doing Food Not Bombs became a method for studying that. Uh, And then why mass conspiracy was Food Not Bombs gives us a lens into not just one particular city or even one particular country, but it gives us a lens into the ways in which uh, capitalism works globally. You know, it, Food Not Bombs exists on every continent except Antarctica, uh, and its basic principles uh, mean that it only works if there's enough food being thrown away uh, to recover and recirculate, and it's only useful and meaningful if there are people going hungry. So everywhere Food Not Bombs is, you know, in some ways it's a very local idiosyncratic uh and distinct thing in different places. You know, like I've visited free Not Bombs chapters uh, in three different countries now. Uh, and I've met people in all three of those countries who are like, what do you mean, free Not Bombs is in other countries as well? Because they've just gotten involved through their local networks. Uh, you know, they've been dumpstering or they've, been, they've cared about homelessness and hunger. So it's a very, very local thing. And yet, because it's global, because it happens in all these different places, it tells you something about the, the reproduction of these uh, same dynamics of capitalism all around the world. So it's, it, 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 it reproduces itself, you know, like a, like a rhizome. You know, there's this common metaphor that uh, a lot of us use to think about decentralized organizations, which is like a rhizome or crabgrass, um, you know, where it's not top-down, There's no, you know, and it's also a very anarchist way of organising, very practical anarchist way of organising. It's not top-down. There's no Food Not Bombs boss or board of directors. It springs up organically in places where the the, the ecosystem is uh, amenable to it. So Food Not Bombs works in this kind of concerted way. It works like a conspiracy, uh, except... You know, the conspirators are just anyone who happens to care about uh, waste, hunger, et cetera. So that metaphor of the mass conspiracy was really, really captured for me both the the global and the local elements of it. And I I can't take credit for that. That was uh, another friend and Food Not Bombs collaborator who sort of turned to me one day and he sort of said sardonically, you know, you know, Food Not Bombs is like a mass conspiracy to feed people. There's a bit of a silence and I, and I chuckled and then realised, oh, hang on, <laughs> there's something profound about that. It's, you know, it's kind of a joke and a throwaway line. But if you think about it, that says something really profound about, uh, you know, the the social and economic and political systems that produce this effect.
1: Mm. Um and this is uh, Francisco, if I remember correctly, right, that you're talking about, who, uh, yep. that you well, begin the week with. Yeah,
0: yep. we're well, calling uh, him Francisco. Um, he's, yes. um, they're, they're all pseudonyms because uh, of anyone, course. Uh, anyone involved in uh, an anarchist project needs to have their uh, their identity protected. It's, it's really silly too, you know, the, um, there have been times when Food Not Bonds has been on the FBI's terrorist watch list
1: uh, yes, yes, uh, we are gonna, uh, you know, talk about it. That's that. That was really interesting to me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's it's so absurd, you know, and, and on you know, and it's not just because it it's not just an accident because it has bombs in the title. It's, um, you know, the the FBI is really supposed to re- release who's on the terrorist watch list, but you know, they occasionally accidentally let it seep out, and um, uh, and and it's because precisely because of the the decentralized method you know they they call it, they call what they're doing anarchism and direct action uh, and they kind of think about what they're doing in opposition to these kind of top-down state-based structures and that makes it uh, suspect in some people's eyes so even though it's it. it's a movement of uh, basically it's a pacifist movement not that everybody, would call themselves pacifists, but it's so, it's so the opposite of a threat. You know, these look crusty punks and hippies and uh, and um, uh, you know Quakers and and pacifists and you know people of all of all sorts who were just really keen to make sure hung- hungry people have food. <laughs> um, but it, uh, yeah, but it it appears as a political threat in some ways. You know. Um, and so it gets, and we can talk more about that uh, a bit later but maybe, but that, um, that gets it labelled uh, as a, a kind of a danger.
1: Um, yes, we will definitely talk about it um, more later. But uh, you, you divide the book into three parts, right? And each part kind of uh, prepares the reader for what is coming next, uh, which is, as you note yourself, like a three-course meal. And, 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 and that's a model that uh, I think is quite common in discard studies. Uh, so in the first of these three parts, you talk about what you call abject capital, uh, which is a concept you've been working on for quite some time now, I believe. Uh, I, I vividly remember reading your article in Social Text about perhaps uh, four or five years ago. Uh, And the reason that I remember reading it is because of that dumpster scene that you begin the article with, uh, which was quite memorable. Um, I don't want to spoil it for those who haven't read it, but uh, you talk about abject capital there. And the question you ask at the end is, why throw away something that is perfectly okay to eat? So could you tell us a bit about abject capital and what it represents in a wider context?
0: Absolutely. Um, and I'll say something about discard studies, too. Uh, you know, it, it's one of my uh, sort of intellectual homes. It's, it's this interdisciplinary uh, range of scholars and, and researchers who are, I mean, all one way or another writing about these questions of how things become waste, mm. how things get thrown away.
1: Mm. How, how I- recent is discard studies? Um, is, is it like an emerging field, David?
0: I, I would still call it emerging. I think, uh, if I'm not wrong, I think the website uh, Discard Studies, uh, which I think was started by Robin Nagel, um, who whose work is on uh, waste infrastructure and waste management infrastructure in New York, uh, I think she started that web page, oh, maybe around 2011. It's a, it was initially a, just a blog where anyone who's working on sort of waste related issues can publish some of their work. Um, not, I'm not sure how far, how much further back it goes than that. Uh, but you know, there's this in lots of different fields, uh, a lot of us have ended up with really parallel questions because, you know, I, I initially didn't think I was writing about waste. I thought I was writing about homelessness and I thought I was writing about hunger. And I, it often happens, uh, that, you know, we're working on one issue and we realize that there's this kind of central dynamic by which. Uh, what's really at stake is some things are getting valued and some things are getting devalued. Some things are being kept, some things are being thrown away, and that's somehow, you know, fundamental to the the way a particular social system is ordered. So, I mean, that's an insult... uh, Sorry. That's an insight that goes, you know, back to scholars like Mary Douglas uh, and George Bataille. Um, But I think it's been emerging, I'd say, in like the last 10 or 15 years where we, we discover, uh, and it's as much about the researcher as it is about the issue. We discovered that we had this kind of fascination with what's getting left behind. It's fascination with what's getting abandoned or who's getting abandoned. Uh, and, you know, so I found myself, without expecting to, I found myself really needing to understand the dumpster and why edible food was ending up in the dumpster before I could really tell the story of food, not bombs, and why it was important. Um and you know as you say, so much of what ends up in the dumpster is edible, so it it you know applying that method of discard studies, we ask if it's not being valued for its edibility, what is it being what is it being valued for uh, and so then then, for me, that becomes a question about how capitalism values goods uh and you know and that also that leads us to ask about how capitalism values people because if someone's hungry and yet the food is getting thrown away or well, their their hunger and their their need to sustain themselves isn't valued by capitalism in you know in the same way as maybe the you know the sticker price you know the the so i think becomes abject capital uh, because it can't be sold profitably you know there's plenty of food that's edible but for whatever reason uh, it's not as profitable to leave it on the shelf and make sure it sells as it would be to clear off the shelves put something new on there you know and that the you know the dynamics might be different for different kinds of products you know I think might have a sell-by date on it or it might just be an avocado that is uh, you know so ripe that it wouldn't sit on someone's shelf for uh, for as long as I needed to at home. But either way, in the kind of constant throughput of goods in the commercial food system, uh, overall it becomes, uh, you know, the, the kind of cut and thrust of profit and loss. It's more profitable to clear the shelves off, put new stuff on, clear the shelves off, put new stuff on. Um, so there's this inexorable throughput of uh of goods into the bin, as well as into the, the hands of consumers. So, you know, coming back to discard studies, uh, the question was, what does that tell us about how capitalism values things? In a way, there's an obvious uh, an obvious answer. Capitalism values uh, goods as commodities. It values them for their ability to return a profit. If they can't return a profit, uh, then, you know, then they're, they're no good. To capitalism, but then there's another question that that begs, which is why not just give it away? You know, if you have to take it off the shelf, why not just give it away? And you know, uh, certainly uh, there there are lots of uh, lots of companies that are willing to donate their produce, um, but they they'll donate it to specific charities, right? They won't just give it away to anyone who wants it. You know, they won't just put it out uh, in front of the shop so that anyone can take it. So I started to think about what it, what is, what does it mean that this food can be recirculated uh, by being donated to a soup kitchen or a food bank, or it can go to the dumpster, um, but it can't be recirculated out front. And so, you know, you can only do a sort of, uh, all you need to do is a sort of easy thought experiment. In the United States, you uh, at least five billion pounds of food uh, is, um, uh, at least five billion pounds of edible food uh, is thrown away every year by retailers and uh, and wholesalers. If they didn't throw that away, if they just gave it away to anyone who wanted it, it would change the structure of the, uh, you know, the grocery market completely. So what that means is it's being thrown away Uh in order to protect the structure of the market and in order to maintain this kind of paradigmatic relationship between consumer and, uh, and seller. So it's important that it gets thrown away. You know, they're, they're, they're not disinterested with it. It can only be recirculated in these couple of places uh, with, uh, because if it's recirculated, otherwise disrupts the whole market. So, so it means it's still part of capital. This is the thing that I realized, the kind of like, bing, aha uh-huh moment, uh, is it, it's, even though it's been thrown away, it's still part of the structure of capitalism, and it has to remain thrown away. So that's why I call it capital. It's still capital, even though it's not going to be sold. Uh, it's just capital that's abject. It's capital that's that's been enclaved and secluded so that it can't go out and recirculate as something else is just edible food. You know, it's exchange value is what matters, not its use value. So
1: to put it more simply, um, are you saying that the value of the things that are on the shelves are kind of determined by this abject capital that must be wasted or that is wasted? And if if that's the case, then this abject capital should not be visible to, uh, I don't know if visible is the right word, but visible to people who actually shop from those shelves. It should be absent from... Uh, what you call market public in the second part of the book right
0: yeah yep thank you very much for um, reminding me of things that I've said in the book more succinctly (laughs) than I've just said them (laughs) Um, yeah absolutely so uh, I mean this you know the abjection is interesting because uh, it has to you know when we throw a thing away it has to be away right It, it You know, there there are all these ways in which waste, the garbage, the thing that's been discarded, is kind of kept uh, kind of not just out out of sight, out of mind, but it's kind of it becomes, it seems dangerous to us. uh, You know, I mean, all you have to do is talk about dumpster diving to people who haven't been and that the immediate kind of visceral reactions that people have about it. By the way, I should say. Uh, dumpster diving, I've always found to be relatively safe if you know what you're doing. Uh, and I don't want any, any of your listeners to run out, you know, eat. Yeah, don't try this at home. Yeah. But well, you know, learn the basic principles. Uh, and, and they're the same basic principles that kept our, you know, grandparents or great-grandparents safe before there was refrigeration and use by dates. Mm. You know, don't just go out and re- eat some rotten avocados and say, David told me this is fine, uh, <laughs> but um, but by this by the same token, don't trust your disgust, right? Your disgust is culturally coded, and your disgust is what maintains this kind of us them relationship between those of us who uh, uh, who consume in the quote unquote normal way and those people who don't. Mm. So yeah, this, these goods they become kind of ejected from the. Uh, The whole sphere of normal society and that becomes the sphere where uh you know market exchange is the norm market exchange is the way that things get done Mm.
1: and how would you say abject capital and market public the two concepts that you talk about in the um, you know first and second part of the book are produced in the first place especially in uh what we'd like to call global cities
0: yeah okay um uh great questions and I, i think i'll I'll tackle the question of market public first. Um, you know, those of us who were schooled and socialized to consume in the normal way under capitalism, right, those of us who are uh, kind of socialized to trust what we're getting when we pay for it in a transaction, but to be a bit suspect about anything that comes to us uh, otherwise, we've internalized the norms of the market. Uh, and. That, when we ha- when we have that in common, and when our you know uh, you know when our governments and our elected officials uh, and our neighbours all have those assumptions in common, uh, we come to think about ourselves as you know the political norm, and anyone or anything who's outside of that who consumes differently, uh, are kind of treated as outside of the public somehow um, so our sense of who and what is in the public good who and what is in the public interest is kind of filtered through uh, the norms of market exchange and and people who don't consume in the the typical way they you know, buy and sell things in the, uh in you know for money they become suspect you know in the uh, in the United States where trick-or-treating is, um, uh, you know, the done thing at Halloween. Uh, you know, it used to be that people would uh, trick-or-treat and they'd get, you know, possibly a homemade uh, candied apple or something like that. Um, and, you know, more and more that's seen as dangerous, you know. So when people trick-or-treat, uh, if if they're allowed to at all, you know, they get pre-wrapped. Candy that's been bought at the store, and that's that kind of has the mark of trustworthiness. Um, whereas if it's come from somewhere else, uh, you know, then uh, then parents are worried. And you know, even though uh, there's, I don't think there's any evidence of people actually poisoning strangers' children with homemade candy. Uh, you know, that that's still kind of this pervading fear, and it makes people go to the shops and buy buy candy in that kind of packaged form. It makes, it sends people to the commodity because the commodity is the thing that we trust. Uh, you know, there's all sorts of ways in which, uh, you know, the market is, market norms are reinforced. And the same thing happens to Food Not Bombs quite a lot. You know, that people in Food Not Bombs show up in public, public places and just give food away for free. And, uh, and that activates a lot of people's fear and discomfort. And so they are these kind of overblown uh, suspicions of food not bombs, like, well, you might be trying to poison homeless people, or, um, uh, or you know, free food attracts rats and and disease, uh, and so they want to make sure that, uh, to put it in Mary Douglas's terms, they want to make sure that uh, matter goes in its place. You know, if we're doing something in a kind of non-market way, where matter out of place, you know? So they want to make sure that uh, if food is circulating, it's circulating in this kind of legible, trustworthy way, being bought at a shop, or alternatively, if it's circulating for free, it's got to be in these kind of authorised places like a soup kitchen or a, an indoor soup kitchen or an indoor uh, food
1: bank. Mm. And is this, is this kind of the rationale between? Uh, uh, sorry, behind all these you know, prohibitions and the bans of, of fitting the homeless, at least in the
0: US? Yeah, or it's, it's part of the justification, right? Mm. So this is another... Uh, we're sort of skipping the question about global cities for a moment. We're kind of going to the, the question of uh, what the market public... What, what the implications are of the market public, not just for what can circulate in public, but for who can circulate in public. Right. So um, one of the things about food not bombs is it's often illegal to share food in public. You know, at Mm -hmm. least, you know, like you can give someone else a sandwich and that's okay. Uh, But if 10 of you give uh, 70 sandwiches to 70 different people, uh, then local governments and local business, uh, like chambers of commerce, uh, start getting really antsy about it. Um, And so, they, so it's often, you know, there, there are a range of ways in which it's prohibited. Sometimes they just won't give you a permit, or sometimes there'll be an out-and-out out fine. In San Francisco, in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, over 1,000 people were arrested uh, for just giving food away um, in public places. So, you know, the justifications are often framed in terms of public health and public safety. Uh, and you either uh the food that's being circulated is treated as suspect, or the people who are being gathered are treated as suspect, right? The you know, too many uh too many homeless folks in one place always uh gets up the hackles of of non homeless people in the area, you know, and the and and all the worries come out, all the kind of prejudices come out, you know, the um, I mean, you could virtually quote Donald Trump, right? They're bringing crime, they're bringing drugs, they're rapists. And, and, you know, these are exactly the kinds of prejudices that are attached to people who are homeless. And really, what they have in common is just that they're not behaving according to the, to the norms of a market public. They, you know, they don't, uh, or they're, they're not perceived to be behaving according to the norms of a market public. They, they don't have a credit history they don't uh, they're not buying food for themselves they're relying on handouts and you know all of these non-market ways of existing um mark them as suspicious somehow
1: Mm. how did the movement end uh, ended up on 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 the fbi list that you mentioned earlier
0: (laughs) well um uh I think that the best way to tell that story is to go back to uh, the earliest kind of broad attention that Food Not Bombs got, which is the San Francisco chapter. And, you know, I did some uh, volunteering in San Francisco. I interviewed some of the people who were involved in San Francisco, Uh, but there is another book I should recommend by Sean Parson, which is about the specific history of that chapter. Um, And also I should recommend Keith McHenry's book, Keith uh, is one of the, the founders of Food Not Bombs uh, and was very active in San Francisco in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, and at that time, you know, San Francisco was going through some major growth pains. You know, that was kind of the first moment when uh, homelessness sort of exploded into the public consciousness. Uh, I mean, it's kind of for an American to cast their mind back, it's very difficult to remember that there, or to envision that there was a time when people who were homeless weren't just a fixture uh, and an inevitable sight in American cities that you had to learn to unsee. Uh, you know, there was there was a time in the '80s where this kind of explosion in the number of people homeless really preoccupied people because it was it had not previously been the norm since the Depression. Um, so. That was happening in San Francisco and a number of American cities. And it was really, you know, evidence of this kind of transformation of American cities uh, and this kind of division, it's polarization in a lot of American cities. So lots more people were finding themselves homeless and hungry while, you know, the city was growing and prospering in other ways. So the anxiety about visible homelessness was peaking. And then along comes Food Not Bonds, and uh, they take the food that was being thrown away. They hand it out to people who would have been hungry in public places. Uh, They kind of can congregate all these people uh, in a a really visible way. So that instantly gets the heckles up of city government, chambers of commerce, and sort of not in my backyard type uh, local homeowners And so uh, the city government responded in that case by arresting people. Uh, And in that case, uh, (laughs) this was kind of a a watershed moment, both for uh, Food Not Bombs and for governments responding to it, Uh, you know, both of which were kind of learning about each other at the time. You know, the government of San Francisco arrested some Food Not Bombs uh, participants Um, and then they went back and told their friends, my God, we're getting arrested for for uh, sharing food, Uh, and suitably incensed. Their friends showed up the next week in greater number. They got arrested too, Uh, and then uh, it ended up on the local news, uh, and other locals were incensed and they showed up. And over, you know, four years, there were these cycles of arrest and growth, and arrest and growth. Uh, And so in the book I talk about uh you know the government's efforts to stop food not bombs is being like throwing water on a grease fire. Um and part of what makes that possible is food not bombs is this very organic decentralized network. It's just about people who show up because they care there's no there's no money, there's no overhead, there's no boss or like master plan. Um, but in these there's this dynamo uh uh, between, you know, government, effort, government efforts to regulate and control it and this kind of grassroots, uh, you know, driverless grassroots uh, response and escalation. So, as I say, over the course of about four years in San Francisco, uh, food not bombs grew and grew and grew. The number of arrests grew and grew and grew. And grew. It uh, topped out at over 1,000 in, in that kind of four or five-year period. And so in some way, uh, you know, authoritarian and government and police uh, forces in the United States sort of realise that this, um, this model of organisation has the potential to be really destabilising, you know, from the point of view of someone uh, whose goal is to regulate uh, public space and to, uh, to maintain a very particular kind of capitalist urban order. So in some ways it makes perfect sense that the uh, the FBI would uh, label it as a terrorist threat, not because it was, you know, going to hurt anyone, but because it was a form of grassroots resistance that could really uh, uh, destabilise and upset,
1: Hmm.
0: you know, the urban order. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if now would be a good uh, moment to circle back to that question about global cities too. Please, please do. All right. So I think it's also one of the things I realized as I was doing this research is that uh, like Food Not Bombs exists in lots of different kinds of places. You know, there are chapters uh, in the suburbs. There are chapters in the countryside. There are chapters in these major cities. But I kept running into people who told these stories about you know, really prominent chapters, or really well-known chapters, or uh, or really kind of politically active chapters in major cities. You know, I heard about food not bombs in New York City, so I went there. Uh, and you know, food not bombs in San Francisco uh, is is one of the you know one of the most talked about ones, I suppose, in the history of food not bombs. I was in uh, I was in Seattle, and what I realized is a lot of these places have in common a a model of urban development, uh, which Saskia Assassin describes as the global city, right? These are all places that have, you know, a shared set of uh, post-industrial dynamics. You know, they're places which by one uh, set of criteria are really successful. Uh, You know, San Francisco uh, is full of uh, tech and finance. Seattle is the home of Microsoft and Amazon. New York City has, you know, uh, always been a financial powerhouse and, uh, you know, in the the time since the 90s, it's kind of reinvented itself, um, you know, and shifted away from industry and really focused on finances, Wall Street. Uh, you know, I've done work in Melbourne, which has some of these same dynamics. And so they're really successful cities by some criteria, uh, but... What Saskia Sassen says about global cities uh, and cities that are becoming global cities is that success comes along with massive polarisation. You know, on the, on the one hand, uh, you know, there's this kind of influx of white-collar workers really well compensated, uh, you know, but on the other hand, that drives up uh, real estate prices, that drives up the cost of living. Um, people who are already there uh you know, lose access to the manufacturing jobs that might have been there before. They get driven into these kind of blue-collar service jobs uh, that don't pay well enough. And so the the, the economy of these places is really built on a kind of polarisation. So you have, on the one hand, uh, people who can afford, uh, you know, to pay top dollar for uh, what they eat, to pay top dollar for where they live uh, and, uh, along with that, there's a great deal of waste, empty housing, uh, you know, food thrown away, etc. And on the other hand, you have these people who are made more and more precarious. So it's not a surprise that uh, San Francisco was the uh, the first place where food not bonds sort of exploded, right? It was it was it, it was the heart of uh, of these kind of growing pains of the global city. You know, all these people who drove. The priorities of government, who are worried about having, you know, visible homelessness uh, and more and more people visibly homeless, you know, growing amounts of waste, growing amounts of uh, hunger. Uh, so, uh, food not bonds growth, I've argued, goes right along with the growth of the global city, uh, and it becomes a kind of flashpoint. So, global cities are, you know, if if capital uh, and capitalism make waste and produce waste. Uh, in the process of producing value, then these places that are kind of hyper-capitalist, which have these, you know, shiny uh, shiny consumer economies that appear in the, the pages of, you know, in-flight magazines everywhere, uh, if, if these places are kind of the core business of the global city, then the global city is going to produce a lot of waste and it's going to displace a lot of people who end up, uh, you know, precariously housed or homeless. It's exactly the context in which a movement like food not bombs springs up so food not bombs can teach us about the kind of global prolif- the, the kind of global proliferation of this model uh of urban development
1: mm. uh, thanks david for that
0: um
1: so kind of coming to the conclusion parts of the book uh you you close the book with some concluding thoughts and you come up with four conclusions and you're very careful not to call these solutions and you emphasize that you are not supposed to answer questions such as, um, I don't know, how should we eliminate waste altogether or how should we make the world a better place? You know, the sorts of questions that are uh, so broad that's giving a, a clear cut answers to them isn't that simple, if at all possible. Uh, could you take us very briefly through these four conclusions?
0: Mm. Um, yeah, I appreciate it. Uh, I, I appreciate you sort of bringing us to the, the end of the book. It's it, the book is written so that uh, different people can read it in different ways. Uh, so there, you know, there are sections which are, you know, for activists to find their their fellow activists, you know, in the pages, and there are sections which are, you know, working out an academic argument, um, and then at the end, uh, the conclusion is written. Uh, for policymakers um, or interested readers who just kind of want to skip through to the kind of executive summary, uh, and so with them in mind, uh, there are a couple of broad things I want to say. And in a way, part of what uh, part of what a book like this can do is dispel myths. And in a way, part of what a book can, like this can do is to give us uh, a new set of narratives to grasp reality uh, that kind of dislodge the the old narratives. So the first conclusion uh, is just to really challenge uh, the model of capitalist realism, uh, which is, um, you know, which is a common phrase for the ways in which our capitalist norms, you know, and our capitalist ideologies become common sense to us you know so there's this so the first conclusion uh is that capitalist common sense is wrong (laughs) you know we we have this this story which still gets told and i you know it flies in the face of so much evidence uh and yet you know it's an ideology and it's a powerful ideology Uh, and you know the ideology is that capitalism and the market is this efficient distributor of resources uh, and you know, any other way is going to be less uh, less efficient. So all of you know all of my experience with food not bonds, and you know anyone who's been involved in food not bonds for a while can tell you the same thing. It all shows how inefficient, how shockingly inefficient our current version of capitalism is. You know, it throws weight, it throws food away, hand over fist that could feed people. Um, it lets people go hungry. Uh, who, you know, in theory, uh, are potential, you know, consumers for the market. Um, so capitalism is not about, and the market is not about, you know, efficiently distributing resources. That's a myth. That's an enormous myth. So the first conclusion is, is that that's a myth. Uh, and along with that, and this is important, uh, you know, if capitalism produces waste in this way. More capitalism won't fix it, um, you know, and that's particularly important because in the last, you know, in the last decade or so, we we have seen, uh, you know, governments and businesses acknowledge that waste is uh, a massive problem in all sorts of ways. You know, they acknowledge that food gets thrown away, and that's uh, and that's a massive drain on resources, and it's as a side note, it's uh, uh, it's socially unjust, you know. Um, And the same kind of attention is is paid to waste, Uh, but we're often offered uh, a solution that is capitalism-based, you know, that it's a solution where we sort of incentivise, you know, waste recovery. We find uh, find ways of creating new markets. And this is not to say that, uh, you know, this is not to make a kind of romantic blanket criticism to say that, Capitalism will never be useful, or that there's there's no value in these kind of market based uh, solutions, but they're band-aids. And you know the the central uh, the central dynamic in capitalism that produces waste is this kind of cost benefit analysis. Uh, and as long as it's more profitable to throw things away than not, more capitalism won't fix it. You know, so that there's um, there have been these laws sort of uh populating around uh, you know, from France and California and Italy, uh, which require uh businesses to donate their produce um, or to find, you know, it rather than throw it away. It's great, it's useful, but it's still requiring businesses that work on a for-profit model to take the responsibility for uh for redistributing the waste. It doesn't change anything about the commodity chain that produces the waste in the first place. So to come back to the kind of simplistic version of the the first conclusion, capitalism produces a great deal of waste. It's not uh, the efficient distributor of resources people say it is, and therefore, you know, more capitalism will not be all of the solution. So the second thing is that one of the dynamics that keeps the waste happening is also a cultural dynamic. You know, it's affective, uh, it's felt, uh, and and it takes the form of a kind of prejudice against things that have been thrown away. Uh, you know, that prejudice is part of what keeps markets ticking in general. It's part of what leads us to value uh, things that circulate in the, mar- in the market public as opposed to valuing things that have been excluded from it. And that prejudice is applied to people as well as things. That's the second conclusion. Uh so people who consume things differently, people who squat rather than pay rent, people who dumpster dive rather than buy their food from a shop, uh, people who are homeless, uh, people who, um, even, even to the extent, you know, that uh, alternative food ways like food forests uh, and, and gleaning and foraging, uh, you know, to the extent that those things challenge the kind of dominant ways uh, of circulating uh, food, they're also mistrusted. You know, the, uh, the trick-or-treater, for example, you know, mistrusts the uh, the free gift because it come, it's suspect it doesn't come with the kind of capitalist norms. So all of those prejudices get applied to uh, people as well as things, and that reinforces our social order. So the third conclusion follows on from that second conclusion, which is that those prejudices when they become written into law when they become written into political order uh, they end up regulating not only how we interact with other people but also how we distribute resources and food not bombs is the classic example Uh, prejudices against people who are homeless prejudices against free food uh, that kind of suspicion that's attached to anything that's not uh, circulated in the common Capitalist way consumed for money. Those prejudices organise us in space. They keep, you know, they keep uh, the people who are poor and hungry in one place. They keep the people who are uh, comfortable and consuming in another place. And they also organise our access to resources. So if if you are if it's illegal to share food in public space, uh, and if this abject capital. That's been thrown away isn't allowed to recirculate in public space. It means people who are hungry uh, and abject capital can only circulate in these kind of enclave places, in you know church basements uh, and under the freeway, where soup kitchens and food banks are allowed to be. While uh, while you you have access to public space uh, and access to food security, if you are not in those groups, you know. So those three conclusions kind of come together at that their conclusions about how resources do and don't circulate under capitalism. Uh, Conclusions about the prejudices we attach to uh, people and things that don't circulate in the normal way and conclusions about how that reproduces inequality. The fourth conclusion is kind of a departure. uh, Because The book is about waste, it's about cities, and then it's about how political movements like Food Not Bombs emerge from that context. The fourth conclusion is, in a way, it's a sort of message to my 26-year-old self, and it's a message to anyone else who uh, might need to hear it in the same way. Uh, And it is an effort to try and understand what kind of resistance grows out of these inequalities and what kinds of uh, political possibilities there are in the waste and inequality. And You know, often when we get into political work, we come with a really romantic uh, and romanticized vision of what we're doing. Uh, And what I learned from working with Food Not Bonds and what I learned from doing this research and doing these interviews with people who've been involved in Food Not Bonds for much longer than me uh, was that it's complicated. (laughs) I guess the fourth conclusion is that it's complicated. You know, we often think about what we're doing as this kind of pitched battle against capitalism Uh, and uh, we have this kind of heroic us versus them mentality. Uh, And, you know, I'm kind of forced to talk about these things in very broad strokes sometimes, Uh, but capitalism, the, the word is kind of a shorthand for a really complicated set of economic ecosystems of which we're part. So the fourth conclusion is that we're embedded in these, uh, and and we can't. There's no simple uh, kind of. There's no simplistic us them relationship that we can imagine uh, between us and the capitalist world that we're part of, and that's okay, because we are still part of a change, uh, and we're still part of the dynamic uh, of power and resistance. Uh, that produces change in the long run. So when I was 26 and first getting involved in Food Not Bonds, I was absolutely naively sort of enthralled in this vision of resisting uh, capitalism. And then instead, as I was involved in Food Not bombs, I saw all the ways in which, we're actually part of the ecosystem too. You know, we're scavenging off the waste of capitalism and we're sort of pushing back, uh, you know, pushing back in the ways that we can um, You know, it's this kind of David and Goliath relationship. Uh, But we're embedded in it. So through my work with Food Not Bonds, I learned to think about what we do as working with, within and against capitalism. And it gave me a much more ecological uh, vision of how change is accomplished. Um, So I, I came to see what we were doing as sort of evolutionary, not revolutionary. And my 26-year-old self really needed to hear that because he burned out. He burned the fuck out, throwing himself uh, against the unjust wheels of capitalism uh, and not seeing any change in, you know, in the short term. Um, I think if 26-year-old him and maybe lots of other people you know, could have taken a step back and taken the lesson that these people who'd been involved for much longer than me transmitted to me... Uh, you know, we could maybe do things in a bit more sustainable of a way. Hmm. Um,
1: and a question that I kind of uh, dread to ask, David, mm-hmm. because I'm almost sure that the answer is going to be grim, is that uh, are things any better now compared to when you started your field work almost 10 years ago, at least in the US, which was your main field site?
0: <laughs> um, That is such a hard question to answer because i've learned not to not to see things in that uh sort of um in that uh either or or way it's both and um and if i didn't see it in that kind of both and way so it's it's both better and worse uh if i didn't see it in that both and way uh i would be in a much grimmer sort of emotional place than i am in all sorts of ways things are worse. Absolutely. The number of people homeless in Seattle, for example, when I started doing this research way back in uh, 2005, um, before I even thought of it as research, when I was just involved in three-not bombs, the number of people homeless was around, uh, you know, maybe seven or 8,000 overall, and only a few thousand of those people were sleeping outdoors. The rest of them were in shelters. Uh, And for as long as I've been doing this work, the numbers have just crept up and up and up. Uh, you know, it, it crossed the number of people homeless in Seattle crossed 10,000 about uh, when I met you, I think, to begin with uh, about six years ago now. Um, and it's crossed 12,000 now. Uh, you know, inequality uh, has sort of widened inexorably. It's actually really hard to get reliable Data about how much food is thrown away. So some of the 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 numbers that I have to rely on are 20 years old now, Um, over 20 years old because it's really hard to get reliable data. But you know, by all by all indications, that's gone up and up as well. Uh, Housing prices have gone up. uh, You know, and and these are global dynamics. So here in Australia, homelessness grows and grows. uh, Inequality grows. By all of those sorts of measures, uh, it's gotten worse. At the same time, resistance is possible and resistance is kind of, you know, it's ontologically embedded in inequality and power and injustice and and these movements grow and, you know, they matter in and of themselves. You know, these, uh, these kind of alternative economies that, uh, that pitch themselves with within and against the larger capitalist uh, world, those grow, uh, you know, more organised and, and more numerous by the day. And there's kind of a, a wealth of invention. Uh, so, by, you know, by that measure, Food Not Bombs is bigger than it's ever been, uh, as far as I can tell. I mean, it's also very hard to measure that. Uh, but Food Not Bombs have been around since uh, the 80s. Um, and that that's a success in and of itself
1: it is indeed
0: and so I, I always cast my mind back uh, you know to other historical moments that we maybe can find you know analogies with and I, so I think about the um, the late 20th century or sorry the early 20th century uh, when you know this period of in massive instability and depression uh, and inflation and world wars you uh, and colonial grasp, and at the same time, labour movements, feminist movements, uh, anti-racist movements, anti-colonial movements were all kind of bubbling that uh, that had consequences, you know, and that drastically transformed the order. And, you know, I I gave up on on belief in progress with a capital P a long time ago, but change, change I believe in. And it continues to change. So, yes, it's much worse. And yes, I think it's also better in many ways.
1: Thank you, David. Um, There's obviously a lot more in the book, and I encourage listeners to pick up a copy. But before we wrap up the interview, um, I'd like to ask uh, whether you're working on something right now, or are you thinking about doing a research on a particular topic uh, in the near future?
0: Mm. So while I was doing all the work on food and food systems and food insecurity i was also looking at manufactured scarcity in other ways things like housing uh looking at the ways in which uh kind of the politics of homelessness produced uh, a housing economy that also manufactured scarcity so the stuff i'm working on right now is around the you know the emergence of new regulations around public camping Uh, new regulations about who can be homeless in public, uh, and then also the ways in which that leads to other forms of assistance. So, especially after the pandemic, you know, the the question of public space and who can be in public space uh, and who's perceived to be uh, a pollution of public space are all kind of, all all have kind of renewed importance. So I'm doing work on uh, emergency hotel accommodation for homeless people in, in Melbourne, and I'm doing research about homeless encampments in Seattle. There's all sorts of ways in which the prejudices that people apply to waste, uh, and the reasons food not bombs were uh, food not bombs chapters were illegal in many cities, also apply to the uh, the ways in which other homelessness is otherwise managed in public space. So I'm interested in that, and then I've got long-term projects also about. Uh, food forests and uh, and kind of edible commons in urban environments. So I've been uh, I've done a little bit of work with like uh, Otakaro Orchard in Christchurch and uh, the Beacon Food Forest in Seattle, which are also places where uh, food is circulated for free in a kind of non-market way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's this kind of interesting alternative economy there, which is also outside of the market public somehow.
1: They sound like. Very interesting projects and very important too.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for giving me a chance to talk about them and um, for bearing, with, bearing with me while I sort of uh, hopefully ramble intelligently <laughs> and interestingly.
1: No, no, it's me who should be. Thank you uh, for uh, coming on the show and uh, speaking with me today and sharing your insight and your work with our listeners. I really enjoyed reading your book, but I enjoyed it even more uh, talking to you about it. So thank you very much.
0: Thank you. I'm, I'm looking forward to reading Uh, I'm looking forward to reading yours.